Tonight I'd like to <coughs> speak about the four great efforts. And I'd like to um, begin just by reading uh, what the Buddha uh, and one of his suttas said about these four great efforts. <coughs> And what monks is the four great efforts? There is the case where a monk generates desire, endeavors, activates, persists, upholds, and exerts his intent for the sake of the non-arising of evil, unskillful qualities that have yet not to that have not yet arisen. He generates desires, endeavors, activates, persists, upholds, and exerts his intent for the sake of the abandonment of evil unskillful qualities that have arisen. He generates desires, endeavors, activates, persists, upholds, and exerts his intent for the sake of the arising of skillful qualities that have not yet arisen. And he da, 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 da. <laughs> cultivates skillful qualities that have arisen. <clears throat> so I read that sutta, and I say that's a lot of generating persisting, upholding, exerting. <laughs> and it's a little bit fatiguing to read it. Plus, it doesn't resonate. All right? Now, that's an indication of something. Something's off. Either I'm off, or that's off. All right? So, we've got to go very careful here, because we're not going to dismiss the Buddha, but I'm not going to dismiss what I know. So I want you to hear the confidence of the Dharma once you see it. And this is the way you know if it resonates. If you knows what if it goes towards what you know to be true. So I think something's missing here. And I think we make a mistake generally in pulling out suttas randomly because the body of the Buddha's teaching has a wholeness to it, has a uniformity, has a completion to it. And we take out selective texts and then quote from them as proof of our point. So I look up wise effort. And it says, one tries to abandon unwise view and to enter wise view. That is one's wise effort. So then I think, okay, that makes sense. That one resonates. Now I apply that to the given of the first, and the whole thing makes sense. This isn't about cultivating, generating, holding on, pushing away mind states. It's about doing what's necessary to establish connection. Okay, now we're on board here. So it's not about... Said, said differently, the view is true, the mind state is not. That is, when we just look upon things to do to ourselves, ways to improve, ways to generate, wholesomeness, that kind of, then we're just looking at the qualities or states of mind we're in as the ends. But the means must justify the ends. The ends is the connectedness of something. And any mind state is only as true as long as it lasts. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we don't generate good mind states, and so I'll talk about that, but I want to make the point up front, first of all, that we're beginning to know the Dharma in ourselves. We don't have to just believe everything we read. It has to make sense. It has to resonate with our heart and what we've seen. And when we come to suttas, if we look at the body, the whole body of the teaching, generally what the Buddha says makes complete sense to that. But the level of confidence must be there in us, or we just get lost in the labyrinth of interpretation. This really isn't a good and bad game. Most of us have come from a history of morality, and I don't know about you, but I'm kind of sick of it. It's not good versus evil. I was uh, sitting at home just before I came here, maybe a week before I came here, and I received a call from someone I had never met uh, who was dying. And he, only, he was given a two-week prognosis. He had a sarcoma, a very lethal sarcoma. That, um, and the doctor said, well, you're not going to live longer than two weeks. And I'd never met him, seen him, heard him, anything. And he just got my name from a friend who said, call this guy. So he gives me a call. And um, I said, uh, and he, he's very fearful. He's been given that di- a prognosis recently. And... There's a lot of fear. And I said, well, uh, what's the fear about? And he says, oh, I don't, I don't really want to tell you. I, say, I said, you don't know me. I've never met you. You can tell me anything. <laughs> you can hang up this phone. It's like speaking to any, you know. This is the perfect confessional. <laughs> so he gets himself in the bathroom away from the rest of the people. He's in a wheelchair. They, he has to be wheeled in the bathroom. So. And he says, this is a mortal sin that I've done. I think, whoa, I think all kinds of thoughts are going through my head. And he says, I said, well, go ahead, you can, you can just say it. He says, well, I, I committed adultery. I said, you know, that, that sounds like a human mistake to me, not a mortal sin. He says, well, my God doesn't allow for human mistakes. I thought, well, we have a problem then because you're only going to be able to die as a human being. And it's that sense that of, of a moral goodness, of that there's something that we're working towards that is kind of the refined sense of gold, you know, to polish and to keep crystallized and to keep purified. And that we never live up to that, because who of us can ever be content with our lives or the mind states that we have when right around the corner there's always a better quality to be received, to be nurtured, to be propagated. And that sense, and it's important to understand why that doesn't work. Because when you push or lean towards a particular quality of mind, then the other side of the equation, the negation of that quality, 
which is also in one's human consciousness, we lean the other way, we lean against. If you lean for one side of the continuum, you lean against the other side. When you lean against something, anger, irritation, annoyance, impatience, you've created a shadow that looms by its very force and intensity according to the push that you give the other side. It's like taking a rubber band and stretching it out. You let go of it and it snaps at your finger. You know, as I was growing up as a Boy Scout, they told me to be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. (laughs) Now, where is a little boy in all that? Our, our minds would love to minimalize Buddhism to good and evil. Would love to do that. Then everything is black and white, everything is known. We love that. We love that. Some people ask, it's a frequent question, well, how, what does Buddhism say I should do when this happens? As if Buddhism was some kind of a flow chart. You put in the problem and you fl- and the answer comes out like a, one of those. <laughs> Buddhism is a blueprint to clarity. And from that, clarity decides. The natural intelligence. All we do is establish as much clarity as we can bring. And then we move. So when we start looking at this four great efforts, it's very important because our mind is going to constantly try to minimalize this down to, I shouldn't do this, I should do that. I'm shameful, guilty, remorseful. If I do that, I'm praiseworthy, outstanding, etc. if I don't. That's the way we'll shift. So we've got to hold wise view above all else. We have to hold the fact that what we're working towards is connectedness and we want everything that can help us move in that direction at our beck and calling. Then we start playing with the mind states because the mind states are very helpful in moving towards connectedness, but not as ends in themselves. And I say this, this talk really is a leaving talk. It's a talk about how to establish the practice in our life, how to keep and nourish the practice in our life. Because, see, when you're on retreat or when you're a monk in a monastery, the whole environment is a given or is a direction towards connectedness, towards wise view. And so it's easy to hold these states of mind. It's easy. The, it, the, the environment, like this one, is intended to establish that. But when you're out on the street in urban Chicago, it's not. And what we fall back on is the conditioning of our goodness and badness, is the tension between that. 
To fall back in that way is to fall into wrong view, unwise view. So the Buddha talked a great deal about cultivating that which was helpful and beneficial. And it's, it is helpful for us to come in and develop quiet, calm states of mind. Now, you can see that very little can be seen, very little can be noticed. Almost nothing can be recognized or observed when the mind is distractible and and uh, fraught with tension and anxiety and nervousness and stress and all the things that we carried in here. There isn't a great deal that can be seen in that environment. Now, if you think about connectedness as being seeing the inherent nature of things, then we have to have a platform on which to see, a way to see. So we do have to cultivate certain qualities of mind just to be able to get our eyes above the water level so that we can see. So it's very helpful to have an established sitting practice to to work in this way that we've been working so that we can begin to understand what life really is as opposed to the distracted way that we believe it to be. I was at the Oregon State Penitentiary. I want, want to tell the story because I think it's so revealing in terms of what we're saying. I was at the. Uh, I was invited to the Oregon State Penitentiary um, of about two or three years ago uh, to give a um, to um, just have an audience with people in in a, a group just to come and teach uh, some inmates who were hospice inmates for other dying inmates. And the chaplain called me uh, because she knew that I was in hospice care. And she said, some, a miracle is happening here. We have inmates who are changing everything about themselves, true rehabilitation, when they get involved with the dying. And we would like you to come down and... and uh, to help foster the, the attitude that we see changing here. And I said, oh, I'll be there, believe me. So, got in a plane, went down to Portland, got picked up, drove to the gates of this very ominous looking prison. I've never been in prison, <laughs> legally or illegally. And so it was like, whoa. Um, and I got out of the car. This is a side story, but I'll just I'll tell it. Got out of the car, and I had blue jeans on. And the woman, the chaplain, looks at my blue jeans, and she says, oh, you can't wear blue jeans in the, uh, in the uh, prison. And I said, well, why can't you? She said, because the inmates wear blue jeans, and they won't let uh, visitors wear the same dress as the inmates. And I said, well, that's all I've got. She said, well, the prison will set you up with something. So so I walked in, and they gave me a pair of sweatpants to put on, which would have been fine, except the sweatpants came up to about (laughs) mid-calf. 
So then they let me into this big bay area with all these locked doors. They let open the doors and they all go like that. And you walk in and they all go like that. At the same time that the prisoners were coming out of the activity yard for the morning. So I had to stay in this big bay area until all the prisoners came in. And then the doors closed and then all the other doors opened at one time. And they're all passing, looking at me <laughs> with my mid-calf pants. And they're whistling at me. And So uh, anyway, so I'm embarrassed and very frightened. I go upstairs to the room where we're meeting with the prisoners who are um, who are working in hospice care. And there are about 20 seats around, and I'm sitting in one. The chaplain comes up and sits next to me. And before the, everybody starts coming to those seats, I just leaned over to the chaplain. I said, "Well, what would these people have done to get here?" And she said, well, about 18 of them are murderers. <laughs> and I go, oh, I, I, don't, I, what do you, I don't know what to say to a murderer. <laughs> and I kept losing my reference point. I kept thinking, oh, um, okay. It was very difficult for me. But once we all started talking about hospice care, suddenly all that dissipated, and we were right just talking about being human beings together. It was my prejudice that kept me from just relaxing. So the, the story that I wanted to tell about this is that one of the inmates was a huge man, easily 300 pounds, easily six feet plus plus, a huge man with ponytail and tattoos all over his arms. And he sits down. And so we're going around talking about what got us into hospice care. And he tells the following story. He says that he came into prison for a hate crime that he had done. He killed a gay man and um, was one of the most vicious uh, criminals, uh, constantly being thrown in solitary, etc. So after a number of years of this, uh, he decides um, through something that he wants to be a hospice volunteer. So he goes to the bedside of his first volunteer inmate, the inmate who's dying, he's the volunteer. The inmate happens to be a gay man. The inmate is actively dying. And the inmate asks this man to hold his hand while he's dying. And the man took the inmate's dying patient's hand, and the moment they touched, he just started to sob. And as he was telling the story, he started to sob. It was so incongruent to see this huge man sobbing like a little boy. And it was if the purity, and this is where this is a this is where we go back to the mind state. It was if the purity, and if any of you have ever been by the bedside of the dying or the very ill, there's a purity of heart. You just can't, it ju your heart just is there in a very precious and tender way. It would, it's inconceivable to me that somebody could go to the bedside and not hold a genuine sense of connectedness. And given all of his conditioning with this hate for gays and the, 
disastrous and torturous act that he did to get himself in prison, that all, that none of that could withstand the moment of touching and connecting and in genuinely feeling the purity of the state of the heart. It couldn't, it couldn't hold up. It couldn't maintain itself. That's the power of cultivating the wholesome. That's the power of cultivating the qualities of mind to allow us to see connectedness. And when we begin to see or feel the preciousness of that. It's just like what you're feeling now. You have cultivated for this week very wholesome states and qualities of mind so that your heart is available to things. So genuinely you feel connected when you hear a bird sing or the, feel the, the heat of the sun on your shoulders. The heart, the heart can come together with things in that environment. Now you know it. Know it. Don't let it be bred out of you. Don't let it, as soon as you leave here, getting lost in the entrappings of our life, to dissipate that sense of connectedness. Even if you may, we may not see it when we leave, Know that it's there because you've touched it. And work everlastingly towards its end, towards reconnecting once more. Don't believe anything that gets in your way. Don't believe any mind state that tells you different. This seems to me to be what the Buddha was talking about. This seems to me to be wise effort. What states of mind can attention come to bear? Attention has to have a foundation of ease, has to have a foundation of relaxation. There isn't much attention that can be derived from the way we normally live our lives. We have to build and foster a sense of ease and well-being. Some tools that are very helpful to that end. I just want to mention them. The precepts. The precepts have the intention to lead us into in, to interconnectedness. So that when we find ourselves violating the precepts, it's not a call for shame or guilt or moral angst, but to see, okay, I haven't been connected. I've lost my view. Wait a second here. This isn't the way to go. All right, let it go. Now let me get back and foster a whole, uh, cultivate a wholesome mind state. And just push the mosquito away. Not to take what isn't given. Instead of being lost in the greed and the accumulation and the ingesting of things, okay, that's unwise view. I just go the other way 
towards connection, towards moving towards generosity. Generosity is the natural expression of the heart when it sees from wise view. After I gave my chocolate talk, I can't believe the number of Hershey kisses and bars I found by my door. I appreciated that an awful lot, not because I needed all the chocolate, but because I knew it was coming from the generosity of heart. The little eggs, those are very kind. (laughs) Without getting sloppy or romantic in all of this, that's appreciation. Okay. Metta. Metta establishes that base of inward harmony, can establish that base of inward harmony, depending upon how we use it. We can also get locked into this loving quality of mind and be attached to the metta, not for the interconnectedness that it takes us to, but for the generation or feelings of love, which come and go. So we, how we use everything is very important. And it takes us to self-love, self-appreciation. Some of us have such self-dislike that there's nothing that comes our way in which we don't feel disadvantaged. Our mind states, activities, events, everything is to our detriment because the screen through which we see is one of insufficiency. And we've talked an awful lot about that on this retreat. Well, we don't have to believe it. So we're moving towards establishing a platform, an environment of wholesomeness and cultivating and nourishing that wholesomeness. And once it's developed, we want to perpetuate it. So the second of this, of these four great efforts is once it's developed, to carry it forth. We don't have to carry it forth like we're carrying eggs. We're so afraid of dropping it and we have to protect it at all costs and we're afraid of it. It's not like that. We can't be so afraid of losing it. We know our direction. Remember when we establish metta, we establish the force behind our intention. And then if difficult mind states come up, it doesn't matter. My intention is there. I know my way. I know where I'm going. I just wait them out, you might say. The intention will cut through. And I hope in the course of this week our intention is towards kindness, towards generosity, towards establishing self-love, and not about the reactivities that mostly drive and define our life. Sometimes couples, and speaking very personally, um, you can use a relationship to foster and nourish and overcome unwholesome states and cultivate wholesome states if, if you use the relationship in the right way. I found early on in my relationship to my wife that there were certain ways that we would lock horns and it didn't seem like I understood. I mean, this is after years of meditation. I understood what was going on. I couldn't decipher all the stuff that was going on. So I thought, okay, we're going to do. We have to. We have to do something else here because this isn't working for either one of us. 
So we have this little jade heart. It's a little heart, just about that big. And what we decided to do was that we would trade off. One day, I would hold it. And when I held that heart all day long, I would hold her reactivity. And my job was not to react to her reactivity. So I would just listen. I would just try to understand where she was coming from when I held that heart. And she was free to react all she wanted. The next day, we traded. And I was free to react all I wanted. She had to hold my reactivity. And we said, OK, let's see if we can do it for a whole month without missing. I won't tell you how far we got. <laughs> but the point is that you play with these things. You want to foster what is wholesome. This isn't working. This kind of it isn't working. So let's figure out some way to make this thing work together. And what slowly did happen over time was whether we held the heart or didn't have the heart, you held the other person even when you didn't have that being your day. And so it can be used that way. The whole part of our lives can be used to bring forth the wholesome and to maintain the wholesome once it's developed. Now something else that I found very helpful was that when reactivity did arise, that I would question it. I would say, is this, is this what it's about? Is this my anger what it's about? And this is very, very difficult to do. When you get in the thick of stuff and your, and your self-righteous pride and the power in self-righteous, it is almost like giving up your throne, abdicating your throne. I, I can understand how a king would have trouble. Because that's it. You're on top of the world in your anger. And in that moment... The only thing that you have is to say, is this, is this what's about? Is this it? And to reestablish and maintain and cultivate the wholesome. Okay. This. An interesting side note to this, just around anger, for those of you... I, you get to know these mind states so thoroughly. So I'm angry. Well, so first of all, I have to go out and I just have to spend a little bit of time figuring out whether I'm hurt or whether I'm afraid. So I want to look at that. Okay, am I hurt or am I afraid? So then when I get that together, I come in and then I can speak more clearly about what it is that's really driving the anger. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that what I have discovered is if I actually listen to the other person's reason for being angry, so that I actually listen to it, I cannot hold on to my self-righteousness or my anger. Because listening, you have to give up your point of view to really listen. Try it. Try to really listen to the other person's point of view and to hold on to your self-righteousness. Those, those can't be done. Because in the wholesomeness of the attention, of really awareness, really trying to understand, questioning, okay, what, what, tell me what... You can't be angry. You can't sustain the anger. The anger can't enter that 
question everything. In fact, questioning becomes a way of life. Now I'm talking about, again, when you're out of this environment, it's not as if you have to use this week you know, for perpetuating questions all the time, but questions have a way to intercede and put a space in the in the, pro, in the reactivity so that overcoming the unwholesome mind states not through aversion but through interest because we're interested in connectedness now we're not interested in perpetuating the belief of our empowerment, empowerment or the belief of our individuality we're not interested in maintaining ourselves as some isolated, lonely, desperate person who just happens to like his power. We're interested more in the interconnectedness of our hearts. So the first step is to know when unwholesome states are there. So we're overcoming unwholesome mind states now. The first is to know when they're present. The second is to be able and willing to hold those and be accountable to them. We are all each, and we're only accountable. Our inward life is ours and ours alone. We have to be accountable to this and we're too quick to give up that in terms of some justification or rationalization or defense or blame so that we don't have to be. So we have to be willing to be accountable. So knowing they're present, first of all, I know I'm angry. Secondly, okay, let me just be accountable to this. This isn't about you any longer, although we may have to have a communication about whatever it is that gave rise to this mind state, but the mind state is mine alone to deal with. Doesn't mean I blame myself for it. That's going the other way. That's just taking blame inward instead of outward. So it's not about that. Okay. So there's no blame, knowing they're present. Willingness to stop the destructive behavior. Okay, I'm not going to do that. This is, you know, I don't know how many of us have seen patterns of mind now that go nowhere except to our own self-torture. To step out, to overcome unwholesome mind states. You say no to it. I'm not going that way again. That's not aversion. That's wisdom. I've been that track. A tenth of, how many times do we have to go down that to know that we get a bumped head? We have bruises all over our skull. Okay, I'm not going to go that way. That's it. That's it. I'm not doing that. I'm not thinking that way anymore. I'm not going to let my thoughts go there. See, it's not aversion. It's not tightness. It's not morally good. Oh, it's not good to do. And it's not that. It's like this is it. It's not not putting my hand in fire. Mm -mm. And what I'm also trying to bring out in this is a confidence level, is an absolute, this is it, you can't be taken away from me. I don't care what I read or anything, this is it. We know this in ourselves. And it's time that that confidence arose because we've seen it now. How many more weeks? At what point do we say no to it? 
there's a fearlessness and an absolute and it's not um, it's not anger it's just a passionate no that begins to build and step four okay change my view stay connected stay connected in anger the course of anger is to disassociate to dis- disconnect to go our separate ways it's the force that leads to divisibility. And if I just stay connected, okay, just stay connected. It's not pleasant. I just stay connected. Let me f- work on this thing. And that doesn't mean if you're being abused or something, you stake in the house. Or I'm not talking about the extremes here of, you know, where you're... But in just normal argument, okay, let me just... So we just allow that sense of connection above all else, just to foster that sense that there's still a link there that discussion can be held. It's like the United Nations, all right? Just don't leave the United Nations. Just At least it's a ground, a forum for connect, connection, as thin as it might be. Ajahn Buddhadasa, a teacher of mine for a few years in Thailand, said this, he said, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa was asked how Westerners who had spiritual lives with deep inward wounds, pain and self-hatred could best approach practice. He replied with two suggestions. First, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principles of metta. Then they should be taken out into nature, into a beautiful forest or mountains. They must stay there long enough to realize that they too are part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with all of life and their proper place in the midst of all things. You see, as soon as we take a stand against the self-hatred and have the intention towards bringing into the wholesomeness of connection, once the view of wise view is is established, then the wholesome arrives with wise view. We maintain the view, the wholesome mind states will come from and around that view because everything we do will be to reconnect. And the best way to connect is to pay attention, is to treat ourselves kindly, is to move towards generosity, is to follow perceptual life, ethical life. So avoiding the unwholesome that may not yet have arisen. So the last one is, uh, um, this one's perhaps the hardest to understand in terms of non-aversion. It's not aversion that we're talking about here. But it's deeply respectful for the tremendous forces of mind we live with. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, you need something to keep yourself safe so that you can build the forces of wholesomeness to a certain strength so that you can deal with these enormous forces of mind. It does no good to run out too quickly into the world and just get trampled. And so you just have, we have, I have tremendous respo- uh, uh, appreciation and respect for the, for the forces of fear and 
destruction and arrogance. And that's, it, it's a true humility to have that. And to know where we're weak, to know where we're vulnerable in these things. It's not anything goes. It's, it's cultivating and it's keeping a proper protection around ourselves so that we can foster, develop enough strength so that we can open up that. That's what Christina often calls wise avoidance. Wise avoidance. And, and to know when it is that we've crossed over and those states of mind, these pain body, as one spiritual teacher talks about, it being a pain body of our past leaps out. And you begin to see that it, when it leaps out, it leaks out to try to reestablish itself for food, to, to, to establish its reactivity, patterns of self-blame and hatred and self-dislike and self-cruelty. And then it's, after it feeds, it goes back in and tucks itself into a latent form until another situation or circumstance activates it and out it comes again to feed once more. And the only protection we have to its continual feeding frenzy is our ability just to let it be. Because if we don't react, it can't feed. And it looks for other forms of like energy to feed upon itself in terms of complaining. If we have a complaining momentum, then we look for other complainers to kind of huddle with and each complain together and just fester that sense of complaining. And even though we know we're spiraling, spiraling down, still it's like, oh yeah, it feels kind of self-affirming to have another complainer here beside me looking at life in the same kind of negative way. But we know what we're doing. So just to stay away from that kind of energy. We may not be strong enough to be in a group of complainers and to keep our mind from leaping out like that. Wise avoidance. And avoid falling into self-criticism at all costs. In fact, any reference of I is madness. And if we really understand just that simple statement, that simple statement will take us into wise view and connectedness. And so I'm just not going to pay much attention to when my mind keeps referencing I, me, and mine. It's there. It's going to be there for a long, long time. But I don't have to keep forcing the consolidation of meanness behind that statement. We can look out with tender and soft eyes, inclusive eyes. And we look for states of mind like shame or guilt, which keep us referenced and keep us particularized and keep us located in a particular point in time that we can't seem to free ourselves from. Guilt in particular. Non-forgiveness. And we just, that's it, this isn't it. All it does is breed. It's a feeding for the ego. So, I feel the pain of the things I've caused, the grief I've incurred, 
the acts I've done. I feel that. Okay. So it's not escapism, not pretending, but then the eye doesn't reference it. You just don't put the eye there and then you can just move right along. You learn from it and move on. So for me, this is what the Buddha means. Path of wise effort. of Cultivating the good qualities of mind and limiting access to the unwholesome. Because it's about nourishing the heart. Allowing the heart to come forth and to bear its fruit. In which interconnectedness will be seen and known and confirmed. And once it's confirmed, it can't dis- it can't unconfirm. Once we know it for truth, it never unhooks. It never unhooks completely. And it's there. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.